Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 27, Barbara Spellman, The Psychological Foundations of Evidence Law. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Bobby Spellman. Bobby is professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School. She teaches evidence and a variety of other courses at the intersection of psychology and law. And her research focuses on law and psychology, including topics like causal reasoning and blame, credibility, the effectiveness of jury instructions, and expert witnesses. In our podcast today, I talked to Bobby about her new book, The Psychological Foundations of Evidence Law, which is co-authored with Michael Sachs from Arizona State and was published by NYU Press this past year. In the book, Bobby and Michael comprehensively review the psychological literature related to evidence, as well as take a hard look at the psychological assumptions that underpin the evidentiary rules. As you might expect, the book is both wide-ranging and deeply interdisciplinary. It is also difficult to summarize in a way that does it justice, so my primary goal in this interview was just to have Bobby offer some highlights. Bobby, welcome to Excited Utterance. Well, thank you very much. So let me begin with the obvious first question. You and Michael Sachs have published a comprehensive survey of the psychological literature that underlies the rules of evidence. What got both of you started on this project? I think a long time ago, somebody asked Michael to write a book like this. And it's probably someone from NYU Press, because this is a series that they put together. And Michael just said he didn't want to do it unless he had somebody else to do it with. And I met Michael at a conference maybe six years ago or something like that. And it was weird because since we live in the same world of ideas, we hadn't met each other. So, of course, the first thing was like, how come we haven't met yet? And then I started telling him about how I was teaching evidence and all this exciting stuff. And he just looked at me. He said, you're the one. <laughs> we talked about it and agreed that we'd do it together. What were the most difficult parts of writing a book like this, apart from the obvious canvassing of a vast literature. Were there issues that were unexpected or difficult? Yeah, it's funny because there's actually two ways. It was hard to sort of narrow down what we were going to cover, but it was also hard to expand what we were going to cover. And what I mean by that is now, there's a ton of rules of evidence, and there's a ton of psychology research, but there's not a, a ton of psychology research about each of the rules of evidence. And so there's some rules of evidence that we really wanted to include, for example, hearsay, because it's usually important. And those of us who teach evidence, it's like a third of the class or a third of the book, even if we make it just a quarter of the class. But there's really not that much psych research that has to do specifically with hearsay. On the other hand, there's a ton of psychology research about stuff like instructions to disregard, but that's not really a topic in a typical law class. And so we had to figure out a way to include it, but we wanted to make it smaller and make it more applicable specifically to the rules of evidence. Where did you find a lot of psychology research on a specific rule? 
where was the bulk of that material? Well, there's two things. There's one very limited amount of psych research about particular rules. And in fact, sometimes it was law professors' research in law journals about particular rules. And the good news about that is it's about the specific law, but the bad news is, I hate to say this to a law audience, is sometimes the experiments aren't so good and sometimes the editorial vetting review process, uh, that's not so good. On the other hand, the psych research itself is usually good, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the rules so well, in part because the authors don't know the rules so well and the editors don't know the rules so well either. And way too often, it's just based on some fantasy that they saw on TV. Oh, look, they said this. Oh, the judge said this. And so that's what we're going to study. It would be better if there was more intersection. If you have good imaginations, like Michael and I do, you can see that the psych research doesn't have to be specifically about the rule to engage the rule. And that's where the hard part, but the exciting part is to kind of find psychology research that would be applicable to a rule, even though nobody knew before that it really was. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. How did you make decisions on when to extrapolate from psychological research that might be applicable to the rules, but not intended to be directed at the rule? I don't know if we had a principled way to do it. I do feel like sometimes we were jumping pretty far. But consequence from the book, I hope, is that when psychologists read it, they can see, or even a lot of people read it, they can see that there's places where there's this gap between real theoretical stuff that might be applicable, but yet also knowing particulars about the rule that they ought to address. If you were going to ask me about an example, the character rules are a really good example of that because we have these rules about character evidence. And there's plenty of research out there in psychology that justifies having a rule in that people, in particular Americans, <laughs> make inferences about somebody's character from just one example of behavior. Actually, a few examples of somebody's behavior in the past are actually a pretty decent predictor of their behavior in the future. It's not as good a predictor as people think it is. And so we want to keep that stuff out. And there's plenty of evidence for this that's not based on law. But there are also studies that look at it in a legal context, although they're not as good in the law as you wish they were. Let me ask you a bit about the thread that I see binding the book as a whole. Conventional wisdom in the evidence world is that the rules were designed to control juries, or at least to rein in wayward juries. As you describe in the book, there's been some recent historical scholarship that has argued that the target was not juries, in fact, but lawyers. And as I mentioned, I think this is a thread that binds the book, at least for me, together. Can you say a little bit more about this first or introduce the idea? I can only say a little bit because this was really Michael's doing. I didn't do the historical research on this. But the idea that it was keeping lawyers from using the most persuasive tactics, that's really pretty interesting. But see, I don't really know if it's relevant right now. I was going to ask whether you thought that the thread changed the way that you and Michael approached mm -hmm. the book. Or put differently, did the thread drive the project? 
or did it emerge from the project? As you worked on these rules, you started to see that maybe it wasn't really about juries or their ignorance, but rather about excesses that attorneys pushed. I can't get into the heads of the people who wrote the rules. We think about the rules of evidence as being nicely codified, but they were really codified, a majority of them, based on prior common law rules. And those just came from different times, different places, different judges. I just don't see it that way. Let's change gears and talk about the psychological literature. First of all, I should say that the great strength of the book, of course, is the survey of the psychological literature. And I've already begun using parts of it to teach my evidence class. So tell me, of all the rules that are out there, where have judges basically gotten the applied psychology right? If I had to look through all the rules of evidence, what's the one or two that is the most justified? The character rules are a really good example of that. It's not so much about whether character evidence is good or bad, but how much people would weight it, I think, is hugely important. But the problem is a lot of the rules that allow information in for one purpose, but not for another purpose, are really troublesome. And before I taught evidence law, I hadn't realized how many of those there really were. And that, I think, asks juries to do things that are really impossible. Like I said before, there's a lot of research on asking juries to disregard things entirely, but there's much less research on asking juries to use something for one purpose rather than other purposes. There's got to be a better way to deal with that kind of evidence. So do I interpret you as saying that the most unjustified rules as a whole are the ones where we ask jurors to do this kind of mental gymnastics where you're using it for this purpose but not the other? That's actually the toughest ones, I think, using for impeachment but not for the truth of the matter or using for impeachment for prior bad acts of a witness, for example. And so the obvious one that I would have thought you would have gone to for unjustified would be the sex offense rules, the 413 rules. Am I misinterpreting you there, or do you not like those either? I really don't like those rules, and they fall into that same kind of category of thinking that people's behavior in the past is like totally predictive of people's behavior in the future for this particular type of crime. And it's not any better than a lot of the other kinds of predictions that we're making based on character in the past, but perhaps because of the worry about these particular crimes, the view of the severity about these particular crimes, we allow these evidence in, even though it's not any different from standard character evidence, which we keep out. The procedure for letting these rules in was really quite different from almost all the other rules of evidence. These were really this, the legislature barging these things through without the real consulting with the legal academy or judges. And this is quite different from, say, the habit rules, where I understand there is actually quite a lot of support. A good predictor of people's behavior in the future is people's consistent behavior in the past as long as the circumstances remain the same. But that depends on having a lot of past, you know, making it a habit, and also being able to justify 
that circumstances haven't changed. And within something that's a habit, at least early on, it had to be something that the person chose to do, preferably has sort of turned it into something that they automatically do. So it's likely to continue if circumstances haven't changed. Character, people generalize too much from character. It's not just that from one or two instances, they think somebody's always going to be that way. Character is the worry that from an instance or two, you think this person is actually the kind of person who, and then you generalize it to all circumstances. So somebody is the kind of person who steals, then they'll steal from not just their business, but also from their family. No, maybe not. As humans, we're way more compartmentalized than sometimes the law thinks about, or even that we think about in terms of other people. But when we think about it in terms of ourselves, it's like, oh, I would cheat that guy. Oh, I would never cheat my family. I would punch that guy. Oh, I would never punch my best friend. We don't see ourselves as people who are consistent over time and place because we see specific differences in situations. And that's actually true. Current psychology really acknowledges that how we behave is a function both of disposition, character traits that we have, but also situations, things that are going on. And unless you take those two things into account, you can't really predict behavior very well. Let's go back to the hearsay rule that you were talking about earlier when we were talking about limiting instructions for one purpose for another. Where are the strengths and weaknesses with regard to the hearsay rule, at least from a psychological perspective? The rule that hearsay is not allowed, except for 40 exceptions, is really just such a mishmash of interesting psychological things put together. More commonly used hearsay exceptions, for example, are, hey, excited utterances, imagine that. There's the idea that something that people just blurt out is a reaction to what's going on right at that situation, People can't lie. It's just happening right then. Even if they can't lie, which maybe they can, it turns out that when you're just blurting out something that maybe you're hearing right before your eyes at that very moment, you might be getting it wrong. If you're particularly excited, your judgment may be impaired, your articulation may be impaired, you may be saying the wrong thing, yet that we're so happy to allow in. And each of the hearsay rules involves something like that about psychological pressures that would allow this particular kind of evidence in, although actually sometimes it's not just psychological preferences, but also necessity. But the really interesting thing for me about a lot of the hearsay exceptions is that people know this. We could be letting in, I think, more types of hearsay as long as we make the jury recognize or the judge recognize that, in fact, this is hearsay. People know that what other people say has what we might call infirmities, that we don't have to believe them, that they could be wrong because of the time or the place or the bias or motivation or any kind of thing like that. We're so used to getting information from other people that we incorporate that into our analysis of how good the information really is. So is the takeaway then that the hearsay rule should simply go away, that we really do know about hearsay, we know about how it can be infirm, and we should just let it in and get rid of this really quite labyrinthian part of the code. Wouldn't it make teaching evidence way more fun and easier? Well, we might be out of a job <laughs> if that happens. 
I haven't thought it through enough to say that every single thing should be let in, but yeah, I think it should be a much easier discrimination between what should be allowed and what not, and we can leave up to cross-examination or lecturing about the dangers of that particular kind of hearsay. Is there anything in the evidentiary rules or in the psychological literature that looking back you wish you had added to the book or covered in the book? Are there holes that enterprising young scholars might look at? Yes, there definitely are. And I have a file full of them. Of course, at the moment, I can't think of one. Well, what about cross-examination? Could do so much more on that. Not well understood? A couple of problems in the psych research that's understandable, but that could be better. One of them is that a lot of the research is done on individuals without the deliberation phase. And I really wish we had more with the deliberation phase. And hey, anybody listening, please do this. Have confederates in your deliberation phase. So if you were studying, for example, jury instructions to disregard, and you not only asked people to make judgments at the end and aggregated them, rather you got your subjects into a room together to talk about it, and you planted a confederate who brought up the stuff that that was supposed to be disregarded, and you could see what the reactions were, and then you could see how the jury behaved, that would be an interesting thing. And you could do that with other types of evidence. If some witness perseverates on some kind of evidence, how the rest of people would react and would that bias the jury in some kind of way. So as we wrap up this episode, let me ask you the question that I typically ask our guests. And maybe you've already answered this in your last answer. Where would you like to see the research in this area go in the future? Could be future psychological work, could be future legal policy work. The reason why I'm asking this is if you have an enterprising young scholar, person is interested in this area, where should they go? If they're a legal academic, they should talk to a psychologist. That's the first thing. I'm not saying that the research should get so specific about each individual rule that you can't generalize. That's not tempting to a psychologist because we want to be able to apply what we know, but not only to one particular case. And in order to make the research relevant for law to accept it, they have to believe that it's not only so specific to one particular case. Now, if some jury consultant wants to pay you to do that research for the particular case they're working on, that's a whole other thing. But we need things that are both attractive in a kind of theoretical way as applicable to actual rules of evidence. I think that would be a good place to go. And we could do so many things better now because of technology, for example. So much of the research, if it deals with objections or character evidence or hearsay or whatever it does, we use the psychology experiments and we only deal with one instance of it. You know, we make up a trial, maybe it's something subjects read, it might even be a video, but we don't have enough of it being realistic. And we don't do it over enough period of time that it really simulates the kinds of things that happen with reasoning and understanding and memory over time, especially when there's multiple instances of objections or character evidence or whatever it is. So we need to incorporate these other processes that happen naturally over time through memory, reasoning, decision-making experience, all that kind of stuff in order for it to be relevant 
or we might say have external validity to real, real trials. Well, Bobby, thanks for the opportunity to talk about your new book and the psychological foundations of evidence law. It's sure to be a classic in the field. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. As I noted at a recent panel discussing Bobby's book, I've been waiting for a book like this for a long time. Early in my teaching career, I remember a lunch that I had with students where we all concluded that someone really needed to write a book linking the evidence rules with the psychological literature. After all, the evidentiary rules are effectively psychological folk wisdom that has simply been passed down through generations. With the recent trend towards social science and empiricism in law, it only seemed right that the rules of evidence should also be tested in that crucible. Now, I should emphasize that the conclusion was that someone should write the book, because I felt that only a psychologist could do the project justice, and it was clear that whoever took on this project was going to have to do a lot of work. Well, now we have it. Bobby and Michael have produced a standard reference work. It's a wonderful survey of the psychological literature. It's easy to consume. And as you read the book, it immediately sparks new ideas and thoughts. I'm convinced that the book will inspire an entire generation of new scholars to continue to push the envelope in this field. Lest you think that the fix is in, let me, in closing, offer up my one regret about the book. I would have loved for Bobby and Michael to push harder on how the evidence rules should change to respond to the existing psychological literature. To my mind, the rules we have are very much like the now often maligned forensic sciences. They were built on folk wisdom that may make some intuitive sense, but that is not scientifically rigorous. If we took the psychological literature seriously, what would the rules of evidence look like? I'll bet that they wouldn't look anything like what we have today. And having a pie in the sky, for lack of a better term, evidence-based code of evidence, that might really frame an agenda for reform and future research. Perhaps that project, which will again require psychologists and a lot of work, will be a future book two for the Sachs and Spellman team. We can only hope. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.